that the single most important quality a person can have to be successful as an adult is resilience. And to be resilient, you must first fail. And we, we're not letting that happen. I don't know what it's going to look like down the road when we've got these people who have found a way to avoid failure. Uh, to me, losing is the playground of success. I really believe that. And most of the best coaching you can do is after someone has failed. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Hey guys, it's Sean, and wow, do I have a killer episode for you today, and I'm not saying that lightly. I sit down with the winningest college coach in sports history, and that is Paul Asiente, and Paul is the head men's squash coach at Trinity College, and uh, let you know just a little bit about how much he's won. He's actually won 17 national championships. He really is remarkable what he's been able to do over the span of his 40-plus years coaching, where he's been a two-time Olympic coach of the year, he's been a world championship coach, and he's worked and motivated some of the best athletes and even some of the best organizations in the world. And his core belief is that we need to embrace our fears in order to remove the obstacles to our success. And we're going to dive into that, about how do we remove our fears, how do we face them, how do we understand them, how do we get more out of ourselves and out of the teams and the people we work with. So it does not matter. If, if you care about sports or not, the life lessons Paul dives into today are going to be impactful no matter what you do. I truly feel that this is one of the most wisdom-rich conversations I've ever had on this podcast in five plus years. So please hit play and enjoy this conversation with Paul Haciente. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm launching a new podcast called Momentum Minutes. Now, don't worry, what got you there isn't going anywhere. But after talking to countless listeners, the number one thing I kept hearing is you want more wisdom in less time. And that's why I'm launching the Momentum Minutes podcast, so you can hear the most important ideas I'm discovering in about a minute a day. Now, this is going to be the most impactful minute of your day, giving you the fuel, inspiration, and momentum you've been looking for. Now, after spending over five years interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people and reading hundreds of books, I'm distilling down the best ideas and sharing them on this podcast. Think of this like you're sitting down with your wise mentor each day to get their timeless advice. Momentum Minutes is a daily podcast that is now available on all podcasting players, so click the link below or search Momentum Minutes in your favorite podcasting app and hit subscribe. And after listening to a couple episodes, let me know what you think by sending me an email to sean at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. 
There is so much to unpack with, with you, your career, what you've learned. But I actually would like to start in an interesting place. Do you have any tattoos? I do. I have two tattoos. What are they? And, uh, and I've marked um, two moments in my life that were sort of bigger than me, um, as most moments are. Um, when I had my stroke in 2002, um, I put a tattoo on my back in um, Asian lettering, and it says, Choose Happiness. And uh, when I had my open heart surgery, I put a tattoo on my wrist, which says forward, um, which was really reflections on why those two incidents happened and what it was that I needed to do um, moving on. Can you unpack a bit more just the word forward and how you think about that and use it in your own life? Sure. Well, it's interesting. You get bogged down on things. You um, you oftentimes, and, and I know... I have a, I'm a neurotic human being, and so I, I want everybody to be happy and everybody to like me. And I know that, you know, I've learned that that is not going to be the case. And so one of the things that was happening when my hope and heart surgery was we were experiencing some success here in the program. And I was becoming sort of bogged down with what people's perceptions were. Oh, you know, how can that small school be doing these things? They must be cheating. That's not possible. You know, that kind of stuff. And I was taking that too personally. And so when I came out of my open heart surgery, I realized that I was it was like being a ship in the ocean. And all of the white noise was sort of like seaweed wrapped around the, uh, the rudder of the ship. And if you just go in there and, and get rid of that stuff and just move forward, you leave all of that behind. And I found that to be sort of a comforting concept at a time when I needed it. I'm wondering for you, I mean, it, it seems like it took a number of years, both successes and failures to be able to reach that. Are you able to impart these types of, let's call it even wisdom on your players at such an early age? You know, it's really important. Um, I have a friend who is, is dying of cancer and I said to him, what is this? Tell me, <laughs> what is all of this about? And he said, purpose. If you have found your purpose, then you're, you're complete. And for me, I have no doubt that my, my purpose is messaging. And I get to work with young people every day. And so all I want to do is pay it forward. Everything I've learned, good, bad, you know, I, I'm completely, I completely expose myself to the players. You know, when I make mistakes, I immediately let them know it when I'm having thoughts that are not healthy or productive. I let them know that so that they can ride this journey with me and I can ride their journey with them. I heard a really good quote recently that says leadership is not taking someone somewhere, but actually inviting them along for the journey. And, um, so that, yeah, that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. And, uh, you know, as, as, as time and, takes away my, my faculties and, and my, uh, my body breaking down, I still have a mouth and I still have a, a memory and I'm able to share those things with the guys. That's wonderful. For you with your purpose, when did you feel that? When did you truly embody that? I'm just wondering how long in your coaching career did you fully crystallize that? Maybe last Monday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, everything is just a, as a continuum. And, um, it's interesting, as you get older, it, it starts to make more sense. 
Um, I always joke that, um, you know, I'm, I'm figuring it out more every day. And I think by the time I figure it all out, I'll have run out of time. Yeah. But every day is another opportunity to learn. I learn more from the from the student athletes than they learn from me, probably. But it's it's been, you know, I've made so many mistakes. I've I've been I've just been so ego attached and driven by things that I thought were going to bring me forward or bring me more stuff. And it's just all such garbage. And and it's taken me a long time. I you know, I, I, I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning professionally. And, and people say to me, well, I could never imagine you retiring. And um, actually, you know, I recently I sat down and I thought to myself, I have enough. Hmm. I have enough. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, cars and homes and things like that. But just I'm very much at peace with where where we've gotten. And it's a nice place to be. That certainly sounds like a beautiful place to be. I feel like I'm I'm getting a little bit of Eastern training there with yeah, yeah very much so. <laughs> yeah, well, can you actually even even I'd I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on some of the things that your ego was attached to that you realized really weren't serving you good that maybe you were going after earlier. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I, I children are raised by parents, and my parents were wonderful people. Um, but I think how I perceived the messaging maybe crippled me a little bit. Um, Any time that I would have, I, I or whatever I was doing professionally um, achieved some level of success, my father would immediately say to me, what's next? Hmm. What's next? And so I kind of got caught on that treadmill. Okay, what's next? And not really ever being in the moment to be able to say that was pretty cool or, or geez, that wasn't really very good, but let's learn from that. On the flip side of the coin, you know, my mother, uh, beautiful Italian mother, you know, she, I think she was pretty convinced that I um, was so special that Michelangelo's David was carved in my likeness. So, you know, the conflict of those two things was just too much for me. And so, you know, always striving, always striving, trying to get more, trying to get more, another newspaper article, maybe another national championship ring. And then it was like, I'm really not very happy. And, and I'm not really enjoying the journey. Um, recently, I had a friend who called me and he said, oh, I, I've been talking to one of your former assistant coaches when you were at West Point in 1974. And immediately my stomach clenched. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I said to him, well, please tell him hello. And please tell him I think he'd li- like me, the person I am today, more than the person he worked for. I, I don't look back fondly. And so that whole process has gotten me to where I am today. Do you feel that process for you specifically could have been sped up? Or is this just one of those journeys we have to go through and you can only get to wisdom by going through that? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I had to, I think that I had to go through and make all the mistakes that I made along the way. Yeah. The and I'm okay with all of that. You know, we, we wrote a book, Jim Zug and I wrote a book entitled Run to the Roar. And that had three themes to it. But one of the primary themes was we wrote it as an apology to my three grown children because I really wasn't there for them when they were growing up. And um, so the process I went through personally was what I needed to do. I just wish that the people in my life along the way didn't have to suffer with it. But, um, 
you know, that you hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. And, and and people like myself and listeners, we're fortunate to be able to hear from your personal experience to to hopefully course correct a bit sooner. So <laughs> I, I appreciate the brave souls like you willing to, to come forward and, and address that. So thank you for that. Yeah. And I, I know that's not an easy gift um, to be able to give and even view it like that. But people like myself do view it like that. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you, you mentioned your early days. One of the things that I find very intriguing is here you are, and I'll, I'll put words around you because I know you're too humble, but let's throw it out there as potentially one of the greatest coaches of all time. I would have assumed you started playing uh, at the age of four and were just involved <laughs> in this sport nonstop. Yeah. Please tell me how you got involved in this sport. Um, backwards, uh, weirdly. So, um, you know, I was born in the Bronx, right across the street from Yankee Stadium. And uh, we uh, moved into the suburbs when I was about 14. And I was very small for my age and tried all the sports and wasn't really very good at anything. And so I took up gymnastics primarily because I was small. Mm. <laughs> and so I went to a college where gymnastics was renowned and walked on to the team. Uh, my coach cut me three times because I wasn't a very good listener. I kept going back to the gym. And, and then ultimately I became the captain of the team and, uh, my sophomore year, the Olympic team was training at West Point, and I was up there training, and they said, you know, in two years' time, we're going to have an assistant coaching job open here. Would you, would you like it? I said, absolutely. So I graduated, and I immediately went up to West Point. And, and while I was there, in my second year, I got injured, and it was a pretty significant injury. And I thought, boy, I'm in the gym seven days a week, seven hours a day. There's got to be more than this. So... I picked up a tennis racket for the first time. It was nice to be outside. The weather was good. And so I started playing tennis the way I was doing gymnastics, which was seven hours a day, seven days a week. Well, at that point in time, the tennis coach, who was the real deal, Ron Holmberg, was a, you know, a legend. He beat, he beat uh, Rod Laver at Junior Wimbledon. He was really special. He quit. And I applied for the job, as did seven other people. When they looked under the hood and they realized that they had to run PT Reveille with the cadets at six in the morning, all seven of them turned it down <laughs> and they were stuck with me. So now I'm the head tennis coach at West Point and they take me downstairs to the second floor of Arvin Gymnasium and they say, this is a squash court and you're now the head squash coach. And it was, you know, for three years, I think I didn't, I woke up every night to a recurring nightmare with the imposter syndrome that in the middle of an army Navy match, some general stood up and said, stop the match. This man's an imposter. And they took me away in handcuffs. But, uh, so, you know, the one thing I learned through that process is learning skills and technique and strategy. You can learn that from anywhere. You can learn, you can go buy a video. You can go buy a book. You can learn that. You know, if tomorrow my boss said, you got to go coach volleyball, I'd buy a book on volleyball and figure it out. But the, but the stuff that matters is the motivation and the inspiring people every day to be the best version of themselves. And that's, that's where you can take a group and accomplish something special. I, I would love to dive into that motivating, but I'd like to pause here for a second. So you got cut three times. This is when you're doing gymnastics in college. So I, I'm right. assuming the listeners are probably like, okay, not a very good career here. In what ended up happening in your college career in gymnastics? Well, again, I was at the best school in the country at the time, Springfield College. And 
they were really good and I didn't really belong in there. And so the, I went in to see coach Walcott and, and he said, so you, unfortunately you're not going to make it. And I don't know why I said what I said, but I said to him, and I'm a very respectful person. I said, well, coach, you're going to have to throw me out of here, here every day. Cause I'm coming back in every day. And he rolled his eyes and he said, fine, we'll make you the manager. And so I would go in every day and train with the team and sweep the mats and do whatever managers needed to do. And then my sophomore year, the team was leaving to go to the national championships, and I wasn't on that trip. And at 7 a.m., I got a phone call from Coach Walcott, and he said, you want to go to the nationals? I said, yeah. And he said, okay, pack your stuff. Well, one of the boys who was a national champion um, was told to get a haircut. He didn't get a haircut. And so they were leaving him home, and I was going to compete in my first meet, which was the national championships. <laughs> and so... I had to learn quickly. But, you know, again, being in that gym with all of that talent, um, I was probably already a pretty good gymnast, but it was just, that was deep water. Yeah. So you ended up being a national champion, didn't you? <laughs> well, we, I got to do fairly well, yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, again, I, it just, if you're in the right place and you work your buns off, you, you make your own luck. And I'm so indebted to that. To that experience. Um, I wish I had known then the importance of balance. Um, you know, it's funny, the book, as I mentioned earlier, one of the topics is a clear admission that I've lived most of my professional career with no work-life balance. And, and yet when I go to speak to companies, they ask me about work-life balance and it's, well, you realize I, I'm admitting I didn't have any and now I'm the guru on work-life balance. Well, that was also true at Springfield in gymnastics, we we came home one time from the New England Championships. It was late at night. The bus arrived, and I went into the gym to work out and left my trophy in the bus. Well, that's not a healthy, normal person, <laughs> so I'm not pretending to be. It makes me think of uh, Ray Allen, the legendary basketball player. He's with Miami. They win the the, uh, the NBA championship, and the next morning at 6 a.m., he's in the gym, and he says, I, I, I don't know anything else. This is this is how I live my life. But but a few themes that I'm already seeing, right? You've got that grit, tenacity, willing to show up to, to question the coach there. And then also, I mean, just the the mindset that you can develop skills. You said any of those technical skills, you can just you'd pick up a book, you learn them. And then something that I really found intriguing is the self-doubt. And you said you've had this reoccurring dream, or you did back then. Uh, of self-doubt and showing up and getting called out as an imposter. Is this a dream right. that actually has continued for you through your life? Uh, it doesn't haunt me to the same level. And I have learned, I've met so many very successful people in life. And the imposter syndrome is a fairly common um, thing. It is many different things motivate people. Some is fear, fear of failures. You know, some is the drive for success. Some are driven by the imposter syndrome where they just they don't really feel like they belong, but they don't want to give into that. You know, again, I was born in the Bronx. It's not exactly a place where, you know, racket athletes or gymnasts came out of. And, you know, here I am. I'm competing in my first meet at the national championships. And then here I am. I'm a coach at West Point of a sport that I've never seen before. And, you know, here I am. I'm the USA national coach with players that are all so much better than me. And you just have to keep faking it until you make it and keep lying to yourself that, yeah, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. The one gift that I was given 
through gymnastics was gymnasts have great proprioception, a great body in space awareness. And, um, and I got a master's degree in kinesiology. So I, I'm very good at watching bodies move and understand, you know, how that works. And so that is very helpful in terms of learning new skills or new, you know, it's interesting. I've, I'm coaching here and I've gone blind in my right eye um, after four detached retina surgeries. I can no longer see the squash ball, but I can see the bodies move. And so I can tell exactly what's going on. So again, it's one of those things where something gets taken away from you, but something else becomes sharper. Yeah. I mean, ties into some of the mindsets you've had around you. You, you can't let that define you, right? You're going to continue to evolve yeah. it. It hasn't stopped you. I, I just love seeing that. Something you said a minute ago is people have different motivators, right? Some, some are driven by fear. Have you uncovered, is there a motivating under an underlying motivation that is more beneficial? Is there one almost, I, I kind of view this as a push pull right? Certain times yeah. you feel like you're being pushed by something as opposed to being pulled by something. I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if you, you've uncovered these different motivating factors. Is there one you find that's more helpful or beneficial long-term? Yeah. You know, it's funny there, there, some of the, some of it is sport driven, you know, some of the great fighters of history were probably not motivated by what we would consider to be healthy yeah. motivators. But, um, you know, it's funny. I think if you can reach a place, and this is something we talk about, where you see your discipline or your activity, whatever it is, as joyous, as a celebration. Um, you know, I coach sports that have a scoreboard, but I try to encourage the boys to view themselves as dancers, you know, in, in a ballet. There isn't a scoreboard in that activity. You may know you've had a good day or not a good performance, but people in the in the seats don't generally know that. And so well, my primary focus is the joy and the celebration of effort and the pride of knowing that you stood up to the moment, regardless of the outcome. Um, those are, to me, are healthy motivators. Um, one of the really dangerous things that's happening in our society today as I see it, is the over-engagement of adults in junior sports activities. And you, you're dealing so much with kids that feel so much pressure. And, you know, it's understandable. I, I get it. But, you know, parents are spending all this time, all this money, and coaches, travel, travel squads, on and on and on. And it almost becomes, although they wouldn't admit it, it almost becomes an ROI situation. Are we going to get a return on our investment? Well, little Johnny is your investment. And are you, are you, and why are we doing that? Well, 99% of it is so that they can get into a better school. And, um, it really, um, um, and the result is that young people are not getting enough ownership over their journey. And to me, that's a huge issue because you've got to own it. Um, and so if your parents are or your coaches are pushing you in a direction um, that you are so afraid to fail, all kinds of aberrant behavior comes out of that. Hmm. Do, do you have an example of what some of the, the younger athletes that you're seeing coming to your program today, how they're different than, than maybe this was a number of years ago when you first started coaching? 
not not that far ago. I'm within the last couple of years. Why the I've radical seen this shift thing then? Ramping up. I I may not be smart enough to answer that, but I certainly am seeing it. Yeah. Young people. So I'm at a college. Young people come to us now. They look more put together than I've ever seen. They present beautifully, and the first time they face adversity, they fall into a million pieces. And we're seeing more cheating than we've ever seen before. You know, I sent a message out to the team last night. We're moving into finals. And I said, men, take the F. Take the F. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. And it's, it's just an inconceivable concept of failing. And yet we know that the single most important quality a person can have to be successful as an adult is resilience. And to be resilient, you must first fail. And we, we're we not letting that happen. I don't know what it's going to look like down the road when we've got these people who have found a way to avoid failure. Uh, to me, losing is the playground of success. Yeah. I really believe that. And most of the best coaching you can do is after someone has failed. Could you go further there? I, I would love to know what a scenario looks like. You, you have a player who fails. What is the coaching? What are the next steps there, Paul? Well, the one thing I've learned this the hard way <laughs> is that when a person fails in anything in the business world, uh, whatever activity you're involved in, but certainly in sport where there's an immediate scoreboard. And this is a good message to parents. Do not try to coach your child right after they lost. Go up, put your hand on their shoulder, say, hey, tough game, good effort, whatever. Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. They're going to want to engage with you at that moment. Don't, because their internal temperature is so high, and they're not thinking clearly. So any messaging you're going to give at that moment is going to be lost or internalized incorrectly. Come back to it a couple of hours later. Say, so, you know, this is what I saw. This is how I, you know, what do you, let's share. Let's talk. What's happening? Um, that's your moment. Don't let that moment wait too long. Don't wait till the next day. Have that conversation so that you can help them in their young minds frame things correctly. But it's, it's, that dance is very important to be timed correctly. Yeah. As, as someone who, who played sports the majority of my life, has coached a, a number of athletes for many, many years. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. That message. If I'm a parent, <laughs> right. I'm hitting rewind, listening to that again and again. Yeah. Paul, I, I would love to know your approach because you talk talk about when, when they have heightened, heightened emotions. So the athletes are in, in the moment, in the game. How do you approach the difference between coaching for practice and coaching for a game? And how do you set them up for success in the game, in the match, through practice? Mm -hmm. Backwards. Um, I think practice is the single most important thing in everything you do, preparation. And yet, 
if I'm waking up today and I know I have a match on Saturday and I'm going to go in and practice today, I'm only partially engaged. I, I may think that I'm engaged, but I don't have that emotional connection to that moment. On Saturday, on game day, I am uber engaged, probably to an extreme. Mm. And the reason is my, unfortunately, my sense of self and self-worth is tied to that performance. I don't want to lose. Yeah. And, um, and so my role as a coach is on game day, take the pressure off. Mm. You know, people see me at matches and they'll say, wow, what, what calm, nice guy. I would love to play for you. <laughs> Maybe, but you wouldn't like to be with me at practice. <laughs> because at practice, that's when I really need to challenge the players to be fully engaged. And that takes time, right? Um, when I was coaching uh, World Team Tennis, I became a good friend, or I think, <laughs> a good friend of Billie Jean King. She's just otherworldly. And when we were writing the book, I asked her for some important keys. And one of the things she said is body language will tell you everything. This is true in the business world as well. This is also true in parenting. Learn, become a scientist uh, of just how that person presents and when they're presenting slightly differently. And then you can bring that up to them and help them become more engaged in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, someone asked me recently what the single most important quality in a coach was. And I said, I believe it to be empathy. Because you have to be able to put yourself on the other side of the desk to truly understand how to help a person to, you know, I don't love this phrase, but to meet them where they are, understand where they're coming from. The body language will tell you that. Look in their eyes. Um, and then you're able to tell when a person has, has actually come prepared to practice or prepared to prepare. And if they're not, that's when you have to challenge them. And then... On game day, take the pressure off because they're putting more pressure on themselves as it is. Yeah. What, what type of mindset are you trying to have your athletes come into a practice with? Full engagement, putting everything else in their lives down. How, how do you, how do, you, you know, you do we, that? Right? Like these kids well, are so we, engaged with their phones. How do they step out well, of that and be fully well, you know, Yeah. Well, it's, it's a challenge. Um, <laughs> but, and, um, you know, to me... Again, I can tell by their body language if they're there or not. And if they're not, I challenge them. But again, I'm constantly trying to bring out the best in them in every moment. We talk about the awesome power of now here all the time. And to say, guys, whatever it is you're doing, do it at that moment the best. And they're young. So they're like, well, you know, like yesterday I, I had some fun with them. I like sarcasm. And, um, oh, coach, you know, I'm... I'm under so much pressure, you know, and I, you know, I had such a long day. I was in classes all day long. I said, wow, you got up in the morning. Somebody was waiting to feed you. You went to your first class. There was a highly educated person waiting to educate you. You sat on your tail all day long learning valuable information. And now you've come to practice too tired to practice. <laughs> wow yeah. it's not gonna go guys <laughs> so let's go and so the key is compartmentalizing everything right so if it's lunch make it the best lunch you ever went to if it's class 
just engage in that so deeply that you challenge the professor to be even better than they normally are. When you come to practice, nothing else is happening in your life but practice. Hmm. Now, this phone thing is an interesting thing because to me, the cell phone is the seventh gate of hell. It's awful. <laughs> and we're seeing, we're seeing such bad things come out of that. But the kids have become snap, snap moments. They don't stay in things very long. So I have colleagues who collect the cell phones when they walk in the gym. Hmm. Or you're not going to have turn your cell phones off. I don't do that. Because that's going against the grain of what they are naturally doing. Hmm. What I do is that we have a pyramid where kids sit. They've got their phone sitting next to them. And send them out to do something. They come back. And I can see as I'm talking to them, they're looking at their cell phones. And I'll say things like, so how is the stock market doing today? Because clearly you have an important investment yeah. to make. Oh, and they put their phone down. Yeah. But, you know, just, again, meeting them where they are. I don't want to punish them. I don't want my two and a half hours with them to be punishment. But I do want it to be something where they learn to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reason I'm still coaching after 45 years, years is there's a plaque on the wall at West Point and it's a MacArthur quote and I love it. I, I won't get it exactly right, but it's along the lines that on the friendly fields of strife are sown the seeds that on later fields will bear the fruits of victory. Mm -hmm. To me, what that means is you learn in an athletic field and all that goes with that, how to be successful later in life. You learn how to win. You learn how to fail. You learn how to adjust on the fly. You learn how to make in-game adjustments. You learn that emotion is not your friend. You know, how many of you have, have ever experienced somebody driving in road rage? All the hands go up. That person is not in control. And now you're going to go home and you're going you're gonna to beat your partner or get into a fight. None of that is okay. So you're going to learn to be a better member of society through what you experience here in athletics. And that's where I think my purpose is. Mm. Thinking about the, 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 the void there between st stimulus and response. I know you like Oreo cookies. Can you just share that? I think this is a very helpful yeah. visual. So I, yeah, I teach uh, life lessons through Oreo cookies. And, um, and so I get up in front of a group of people and I make sure everybody has two double dip Oreo cookies in their hands. And I touch my stomach, which is rather large, and I tell everybody, well, obviously, I really love Oreo cookies. And so I'm going to teach you a life lesson here. And turn the one Oreo cookie on its side. This wafer is thought. It's rep it represents thought. And in the course of a day, we have hundreds of thousands of thoughts, many of which are not particularly helpful. This wafer is action. And the cream in between is the period of time between thought and action, all right? Your goal is to make that gap wider. So I want you to take another wafer off the other cookie. I want you to create a quadruple Oreo cookie. That's the goal. You want to create a space of time between thought and action. You know, Will Smith at the Academy Awards had no cream in his coffee or in his cookie. <laughs> and, you know, and I tell the kids this, and, and it's also true when you, you look at moments in history that we remember, like Zindan was one of the greatest French soccer players in history. In his last game of his career, he headbutted somebody. That's how he'll be remembered. Yeah. So don't, don't go there. Learn to think, stop, 
act and save yourself. And then, of course, there's all kinds of metaphors athletically that go along with that. You know, you, it's 30 all and, and you you've missed your first serve and your in, instant thought is, I think I'm going to go for a big second serve. Stop. Not a good idea, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so we're constantly talking about those sorts of things. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you do daily or even daily with your team just to help get to that quadruple Decker cookie there? Well, again, I get them whipped up into a frenzy in practice. I oh, challenge so, them. And so I you, ramp, them. you ramp up the, the emotion to, to play with it there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm constantly challenging them. And then that oftentimes carries over emotionally. And then I have to back them off and say, you can be fully engaged and yet not emotional. You know, Nadal was a very good example of that. That man competed to the nth degree, but he never went over the cliff. So, you know, you can learn that fine balance. And um, so, yeah, that's what I'm constantly trying to do. Yeah, I, I heard a line once about Nadal. I'm going to get this wrong, but it's essentially uh, he is the grace of a ballerina and the will of an assassin. And I, yeah, I, I, I just love those too, how he plays with that. Yeah. Speaking of greats, I, I loved your language a few minutes ago around Billie Jean King. You said she is otherworldly. Yeah. How many people have you come across that you would classify as otherworldly? I've been so lucky, you know, I've, I've always been around great coaches in my career and, and I've was almost always the least accomplished in the room. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> when I was coaching at West Point, I lived on Coach's Road. Mike Shizewski was on one side of me. On the other side of me was Jack Riley, 1960 Olympic gold medal winning coach. And, and these people just were so generous of spirit in, in, in what they had to share. You know, I, I, uh, I'm a consultant for UNC Tennis and Sam Paul, who's about to go into the UNC Hall of Fame. We talk every day about these kind of things and how to manage this and how to manage that. Billy Gino is just a gift to the world. And, um, and I hope she hears this because I really feel strongly about it. Um, I remember when we drafted Monica Sellis, I, who was at the time like fourth in the world. And I said, Billy Jean, what the hell am I going to tell Monica Sellis? You know, she has forgotten more tennis than I'm ever going to know. And she said two things. Remember, number one, no matter what level of performer you're dealing with, they still want your approval. <laughs> and number two, never pretend to be something you're not. That's the fastest way to lose them. And so during World Team, and Monica was a love, but I would, in, during a World Team tennis match, I'd go up to Monica and I'd say, Monica, I think... I noticed something. Would it be okay if I gave you a suggestion? And she'd always say yes. And I'd say, you know, it seems to me like Lakova is banging the ball down the line and, and you're leaning on the cross. And, and she'd kind of look at me and smile and go back on the court. And then something would happen and which would be reinforcing. And she'd look over and smile at me. So, you know, people like Billie Jean are, and, you know, it's in my industry, I've always been on the fringe of the business, the finance world. Yeah. I've always, always given lessons to people that were at the top of their food chain. And, you know, it was the same thing. It was they were super good at what they did. And yet, interestingly enough, most or many were pursuing things that I never valued. Hmm. I never 
value the accumulation of wealth. That was never important to me. Um, so it's always been that interesting contrast. But I would say Billie Jean is in another world. My mentor was Bobby Bellis. Bobby was the coach at Navy when I was at Army. And he would always be kind to me. Um, and, and we would, which, you know, is like heresy. How could those yeah. two people be close to each other? And then he went on to become the coach at Notre Dame and unbelievably successful. Mm. So I've had some real good mentors in my life. And um, one of the things I learned from Bobby that I lo loved was um, one day he said to me, because I was a young coach. I mean, when I was made coach at West Point, the first thing I did was grow a mustache <laughs> because I looked just like a cadet. <laughs> I mean, I had to find a way to look different. And of course, you know, I wanted the approval of the cadets. And Bobby pulled me aside one day and he said, remember this. Keep the walls up. He said, you can always take the walls down, but you can never put them back up. And what he was basically saying to me was, don't get too close. You know, be a leader, be a mentor, be a father figure, but don't become their friends. Because you might have to challenge this young person tomorrow. You might have to issue some punishment for some misbehavior. That's hard to do when the walls are down. And so I've always had these kinds of people in my journey that helped, you know, say, listen, turn left here. Don't go right. You know, there's a bear up there or something. Yeah, it's very helpful to have the, those people. N none of us do this one alone. Uh, I, I'm wondering, do you, do you have any no. any fun stories from Coach K? I, I I'm a UNC grad, so my ears obviously perk up when you. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, How I, long ago did you graduate? Uh, twelve twelve years now. Uh, I played lacrosse there, so. It, oh wow! Big fan of the, the sports you. there, but but I'm wondering. So yeah, I, I, believe me, I, I'm a, a big fan of Coach K, even though he's a Duke guy. Do you, do you have any yeah. stories that you've learned from him? Well, yeah, he was uh, he was a great is a great motivator. Um, during Army Navy Week one year, I said to him, um, "Can I come down to practice tomorrow? Because I'm giving my team the day off." And he said, "Sure, you know, come on down." You know, and I'm expecting this otherworldly kind of experience. And I go down there, and five minutes into practice, he is screaming at the guys. Yeah, I mean, just really ripping into them and, you know, ripped his jacket off and threw him out of the gym. So that night I went over to his house to get a Diet Coke and I knocked on the door and I said, I got to ask you a question. What set you off today? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you, were, you, you got after those guys. He said, oh, no, no, I had scheduled that two weeks ago. I knew I needed to get their attention. So every coach has a different method or a different style. Um, and, um, my, I don't have, I'm not a screamer, so that's not my, my sledgehammer is guilt. I was raised on good old fashioned Italian guilt. And so I use guilt, you know, if the players are not, and I know when it's time to plug it in, if the guys are really not fully engaged, I'll sit them down and under the national championship banners and say, guys, look at those things. Now, I can't believe you have so little respect for history here. You have so little respect for what's gone on. You have so little respect for me. Get out of here. And before they leave the building, I've got like 30 texts. Geez, Coach, sorry, I'll be better tomorrow. But but the thing about using a sledgehammer is you can only use it yeah. very selectively. You can't go back to that very often. Yeah. 
So you, so when I was coaching at West Point, one of my neighbors was Dick Adele, and Dick became the lacrosse coach at, at Maryland, yeah. and was a storied, you know, coach there. So in your life, you may have come across him somewhere. Yeah, it, it's a small world, the lacrosse world. Paul, something you were saying a minute ago is just the players being fully engaged. And another phrase I, I, I identify a lot with is all in. And you've told a story about the proudest moment that you've had as a coach. Do you know what I'm referring to here? Yeah, yeah. People ask me all the time, you know, what was, where was I most proud of the program? And, you know, I, I think people's expectation would be some championship or the U.S. team winning at the Pan American Games. My proudest I've ever felt for a team was we had played at the national championships at Princeton in the finals against the Princeton team. And we had beaten that team soundly during the season. And we were down there and it was a crazy match. We were up four, one first one to five. And, and I could see the dominoes falling and it just wasn't going to happen. And we lost five, four. And at the end of the matches, there's always a little ceremony where both teams go and shake hands. And I was looking at my team during the ceremony and they were crying. I mean, without even trying to conceal it, it's not running down their noses. They were just gutted. And I, I never felt so proud of a group because I knew they went all in. They, they fully engaged to the point where either they were going to celebrate the championship like crazy people or they were going to be gutted by its loss. And I was so proud of that because we, as in society, we really seldom go all in. You know, we kind of stick our toe in the water and, if you don't fully go in, then you'd never really fully fail, do you? So I bought everybody on the team a, uh, a phone cover that said all in on it. Um, probably an NCAA violation, but whatever. Um, and I gave that to them for their rings. <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, was, it was funny. I was preparing for our talk here. And so I, I usually do a word or an intentionality for the year. And, and prior to hearing that story, mine for next year is all in. I just love that concept of being fully engaged. So I heard this and my ears, my eyes, my, my heart just lit up there. So I love that. Yeah. Out, out of all the years you've been coaching, 40 plus years, how many times have you felt a team has completely been all in as a cohesive unit? Seldom. Um, different levels and different degrees. To really go all in as a team you have to put your stuff down. The, the, the necklace, no one piece of the necklace is shinier than any other piece. And so to do that, everybody has to be willing to say, I am as interested in your success as I am in mine, maybe even more so. And that's a really hard place to get to. You know, we've won championships where I was a little embarrassed. I didn't think the team was fully engaged. We were just the better team. Mm -hmm. And then there have been years where, wow, these they just they really care for each other. It's not just words. They're they're hanging around and they're they're rooting for each other and they're there when they're hurting. So that's the chemistry that I that is magic. And one of the things that I've learned is we'd like coaches are like to play God. You know, we think we can fix everything, but really the team chemistry isn't determined by the team, the coach. It's determined by the team and how they truly, um, get on with each other. And that starts with the captains, right? So I, I use 
my captains very carefully. And if I have strong captains, the job gets much easier. If I have captains who just don't really understand what it is to be a leader, then I know my role in that year is going to have to be much more hands-on. But to have it hit just perfectly um, is seldom. Now, to somebody on the outside looking in, they might think to themselves, well, you won. So the chemistry was great. No, that's not the case at all. And every year is so different. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to help the guys understand is when you come back here in 20 years with your partner, you're really not going to remember what number you played. You're, you're not going to remember a lot about the matches. You're going to remember the the bus ride in Maine, which where we broke down in the snow or when we were getting ready to play and someone got hurt or whatever, you know, you, you, you remember those things. And so the chemistry piece of it is elusive and, and constantly changing. But if they genuinely care about each other, you have a chance. <clears throat> it's hard here. I have 11 different countries in my program. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the differences are socioeconomic, they're cultural, color, and religion. And the religion pieces are a very big challenge to get around. We have Muslims and Hindus, Christians and Zoroastrians and Sikhs. The, that, the, the world doesn't get along. How am I going to get them to get along in here? But they're, they're getting better. They're getting better every day. What, what, what are you doing on day one, Paul? I'm just wondering, you've got this melting pot which is more complicated than I have to assume 99% of other leaders that they're going to face. What, what does it look like in the early days that you're trying to positively spring load this? Well, isn't everything is repetition, repetition, right? Back Skills, practice. practice, practice. And so what I'm constantly doing is highlighting your brothers. Hmm. When you're a brother, you you didn't choose your brother. You were born into that family. I put this team together or the college put this team together. Now you're together. Now, how are we going to engage with each other at the highest level? And, and so, sometimes it's just not possible. I had a player in here the other day and he said, you know, coach, I'm not really feeling like I'm a part of the group. And I could see he was just crestfallen. And we talked about it. And I said to him, optimally you would like for him to feel like the central piece of the spider web, but it wasn't going to happen for him. And I, so I asked him, I said, what do you, what was it you were hoping you would experience with the group? And we talked about his expectations there. And then one of the things we came down to was, well, maybe you're trying too hard. So they don't force it. But the other piece I told him was, you share an extracurricular activity. You share the game of squash. When you come in, you engage with them for the common good. But that doesn't mean that this person has to be on your Christmas list. Ultimately, they will be. But for now, now that you're feeling a little bit like you're on the outside looking in, it's okay. It's okay. Just let it happen. But those are the dynamics yeah. that you just, it's imperfect. It's not, you know, when I was at West Point, you would put it out there, we're going to run up this hill. 
and they would do it and they would ask you how many times. But in their lives, in the military, failure is death. So they're, they're trained to not in any way accept failure. And so there is no second guessing. There's no questioning authority. Whereas in this environment where we're, we're encouraging people to share their feelings and, and, and try to help them understand what's going on, I really felt for that guy. But he is still an integral part of the team's process. Yeah. The chemistry isn't quite right. For you as a coach who's been in this so many years, where do you still have the biggest challenges? The the things that when you look deep, you're like, damn, this is still really freaking hard. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I speak to companies, um, very often I'll say to the people in the room, you know, to the leaders, your constituency is a hodgepodge of ages and experiences, right? You've got, you've got vice presidents, you've got all the different levels. And your challenge there is how to get everybody to work together. My constituency will always be the same age. Hmm. I'm always going to be working with kids from the age of 17 to 22. But every day of my life, the gap between me and them gets wider. And so the challenge for me is staying relevant and understanding where they're coming from. I think the cell phone thing is sort of uh, depictive of that. You know, I, I, I don't care what N Taylor Swift's new album is all about, but I'm going to listen to it because I've got to be able to talk their talk. I don't, I'm not interested in WhatsApp and, and all these other things that are on the phone, but I, I have to use them because I need to be able to relate to them because they're not going to relate to me. It's, you know, the old, the professor with the pipe and the worn out elbows sitting in his chair and, and, you know, you come to me, that doesn't happen anymore. I've got to go to them. And so the biggest challenge is remaining relevant and biting my tongue. You know, there'll be times where I'll say, guys, this is what we're going to do. And they'll say, well, well, why? Or I don't agree. And I bite through my tongue because what I want to say is because I said so. But that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so, you know, oh, okay, let's work through this together, guys. Let's talk about it. Oh, drives me nuts, but that's where they are. Yeah. How do you, how do you get them to understand where their thinking can be simplistic and around the stories we tell ourselves? I know this is something you've thought a lot about, so I'd love to hear this. Yeah. Well, one of the – we are our own actors in our own life's play. And we really overvalue that position. And I, I remember when I was in therapy, <laughs> my therapist, who I loved, he would, I'd come in and I'd have all these things to tell him during the week. And he'd look at me and he'd say, those are just stories. You're just telling me stories. And you are the star or you're the criminal in your story. Put it down. Put it down. And so with working with the young people, the, the challenge is because they feel everything so deeply and they want to be right all the time. And so one of the things that I try to do with them is don't paint the story before it happens. And we see this often. So you are playing lacrosse at UNC. And tomorrow you're playing, Duke, you're playing against Duke. Well, you're going to be ready for that game because you know that that's your Army-Navy matchup. If you're playing against Wooster, you're coming in and you're thinking, well, this is going to be easy. We're playing Wooster. 
that's where a coach really has to earn a living because I call that simplistic thinking. You're coming here and you're saying, well, we're going to play Worcester. This should be a fairly easy game. Says who? Says you. Well, Worcester's not thinking that way. They're going to come out firing on all pistons. And so what happens in when you're dealing with young people is you go out to play against Worcester and you're down two goals. Your first thought isn't, oh, my God, I've underestimated this team. we got to pick it up. Your thought is, boy, we're playing terribly today. Well, why are you playing terribly? Because we're losing to Worcester. Well, you're the one that said that was supposed to you know, be the other way around. Yeah. Now you, fought, you get ugly, you get aggressive, you beat Worcester in overtime. And now the following weekend, you're playing against Duke. But you've lost confidence. You're now going into the Duke game less confident than you should be if you had just basically taken care of Worcester. And why didn't you just take care of Worcester? Because of simplistic thinking. You were supposed to beat them. You know, I tell the boys this story. You've got a girlfriend or a guy friend, whatever, and you get you know, a fight on the phone at one in the morning. But then you feel badly, so you decide to call back. The line's busy. And then the line's busy. And then the line is busy. You call the operator and you say, can you please check this number? And well, the phone is off the hook. So what is your first thought? Your partner is out partying. No, maybe the dog knocked the phone off the cradle. Yeah. But the storytelling that we're constantly doing to ourselves becomes our reality. And our own reality, which is constructed, is actually self-defeated. Mm -hmm. How do you then handle that with, I'm just thinking about your winning streak. I think it was up to 252 wins in a row, just consecutive wins, still mind-boggling to me. How are you getting 18, 19, 20-year-olds to still approach that, not like their next match is against the Wooster, where they're coming in and being fully in that moment? Well, for one thing, when we were in that nutty streak, um, I, one of the things that I had to help the guys understand was, was it's not your streak. That streak started, started 13 years ago, guys. Hmm. You know, you were in fifth grade. So you don't own <laughs> any of this streak. <laughs> that's number one. Number two, that's just somebody else count keeping score. It's not, I've never seen a player running around with a scoreboard clicker in their hands. You just go out there and play. Do the business, the work at hand every day. Don't get caught up in all of that stuff, but they do. I mean, obviously they're going to. And so it was, it was a challenge for those guys, and it was an amazing opportunity when the streak finally ended mm. and where we could we, – we lost at Yale, and the crowd went bazooey, yeah. which was awesome. And we were down at the other end having our team meeting, and I said, guys, listen to that. That's not them celebrating today's victory. They're celebrating finally getting – out from underneath 13 years of getting it handed to them and good for them and so what i want you to do now is i want you to hold your head up high i want you to walk out of this building i want you to find your opponent shake his hand and say well done and i look forward to seeing you at the nationals just that's how you've got to handle this you know the world didn't end the train's still on the tracks tomorrow we get up and start again mm -hmm. What, what is the mind state you're trying to get your athletes into when, when they're stepping into a match? 
is it is it that level of almost I don't I, I want the way I used to describe it is close to cocky where they have this aura and this belief that no matter what I'm winning today is that what you're trying to get them to? Yeah, uh, I, I'm a big believer in pride. Um, I don't like ego, but I like, like pride. Mm. And so I always want them to carry themselves like a proud stallion. Mm. It's funny when you're on a when you're a, in a good program. I'm sure you experienced this at UNC. When you come to the game, you know people are like, "There's, there's UNC. There's that guy. You know, they're they're very good." And so what I would feed in, into that. We would never stay at the tournament hotel. We'd stay somewhere else. I didn't want the guys hanging around each other from other teams. We wanted to go in, do our job, pack up your bag, go home. And um, that wasn't that we thought we were better than everybody else. I just wanted to keep this thing separate. And you can catch up with your friends, you know, another day. And so there is a pridefulness to that. Also, I try to prepare the guys for the worst. Hmm. We go into contests really hoping that it's going to be a blowout. I'm sure you went in to your lacrosse games thinking, well, you know, with three minutes to go, I hope we're up 13-5. All right. Well, it's not going to happen. It's a roller coaster. You're going to find yourself up. You're going to find yourself down. It's emotional. It's going to be two minutes to go. It's 13-all. I want you to look at the sky and say, I love this stuff. This is what I wanted. I'm so excited to be a part of this event. And when you get to that place, the outcome is going to be what it's going to be, but you're still going to be able to perform you know, up to your abilities, whatever those abilities are. The other thing I try to get the guys to understand from a tactical standpoint is that as you're getting close to the end of a contest, you need to continue doing what you were doing all along. Don't, don't all of a sudden change change you know what was working unless you're losing and the analogy i've always used with them is uh, um you're running a marathon that's a long way 26 miles so you go out at a certain pace because you want to be able to finish it and the end of the marathon is through a tunnel the finish line is on the other end of this tunnel you get into the tunnel you're feeling strong and then you see at the end of the tunnel the light and you think there it is there's the finish line and you start sprinting mm -hmm don't. And so what I tell the boys is that's not the light at the end of the tunnel. That could be an oncoming train. Mm -hmm. Stay with what you've been doing. Stay with it. Stay with it. What I would love to know what came first. And, and maybe I have the, the thinking here wrong, the confidence and belief in that aura and that pride of they step on and they're without a doubt going to win this match. Did, did the championships, did they come first? And then there was that, that aura, that belief, or did the belief come first and because of that belief, you were able to then find success. The belief comes from the understanding that you've prepared so well that you deserve good outcome. So the foundation you then know. is building in that yeah. incredible practice. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The, you know, I'm, we're going in tomorrow to play against Harvard. We know we prepared well. We know that we're ready. We know that we might not be able to control the outcome, but we know that what we're going to put out there is going to be something special. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the confidence to go in with a level of optimism. You were talking about Billie Jean King earlier, and it makes me think about the, the truly great, right? Like you've got the very, very good, and then there's that, that clear separation there. What separates those few that can show up in those championship-type arenas 
versus the ones that can be champions in, in practice, but they, they can't translate as well to those big moments. What have you seen? Well, you know, people, there, there is a fairy dust component to that. And the fairy dust component, I don't believe that, that people, at least in, in the sports that I coach, I don't believe that there is an uptick in competition. I don't believe, you know, Bob Beeman broad jumped 30 feet in, in Mexico City at the Olympics. That was three feet farther than he'd ever jumped before. That's insane. You know, um, people that swim a PR, you know, that's, that's remarkable. In our sports, it's re repetition, repetition, repetition. And you can't do on a Saturday what you can't do on Wednesday in the Ferris Athletic Center when nobody's watching. You've got it. That's, that's the ultimate level that you're going to be able to perform. And then in game day, with the heightened emotion that's surrounding all of it, you've got to be able to keep yourself calm and focused. And so when you look at someone like that, I mean, when I was, when I was playing, I remember hearing uh, Jimmy Connors say, everybody chokes. Everybody chokes. The people that do better are the people that choke less. Hmm. And I really, I believe that. I think most championships are lost. I really do because you couldn't handle the moment hmm. and the people that are special they're able to handle it hmm. they just have this inner confidence that it's going to be okay that i'm i'm still going to be loved whether i win or lose it's going to be okay and uh they're able to hang in there and perform close to what they're able to do every day yeah i'm wondering thinking about you and what championship performance looks like for you wh where do you find the biggest challenge Right, like what? What holds you back the most? Nothing. Hmm. <laughs> Nothing. How long did it take I, uh, to get to that place? <laughs> a long way. <laughs> I've thrown up after many championships, but you know the thing of it is, it comes back to purpose, right? So, what is my, my purpose? My purpose is messaging. Well, I'm going to actually get to do more coaching if they lose, than if they win. You know. I would like for our team to experience a national championship this year because I'd like for them to experience it truthfully. If I look in the mirror, whether we win it or lose it, I still see the same old man. I have enough. It's for them. You know, as leaders and as coaches, we have to remember that we're here for them. They're not here for us. It drives me nuts when I'll hear a coach. I'll say, so who are you playing this weekend? And he'll say, oh, I'm playing Amherst. Well, you're not playing Amherst. Your team is playing Amherst. And it's really about them. And so the championships and all of that, or just a great performance, I want them to experience it. I know they're going to experience the other more often than not. I'll be there to help frame it for them. That's all. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm thinking about some of the things that, that I've learned from you, and I'm wondering what you've learned from. And I've heard you mention in the past the book Tuesdays with Maury. Oh, what, what impact did that, that book have on you? Because I, th th there's been too many synchronicities or coincidences in the last few weeks with, with your story and then stories that have been hitting me. And I was recently hearing Mitch Album talk and, and talk about some of the lessons, even at being able to reflect. I think it's been 30 years now since he wrote the book. And I'm just wondering what yeah. that book Tuesdays with Maury had with you. So I had a, uh, the president at Trinity College, I was walking in front of his office one day and he stuck his head out and he said, here, read this book. And it was Tuesdays with Maury. 
and it changed my life. And one of the and and then it it of course was with a combination of many other things that um, you know I was going through a very acrimonious divorce and I was struggling with how I was feeling about myself and all of these things. And I was I was in talking to my therapist and he said one of the keys to people's general happiness is being at one with nature. Going out and looking up. Don't look at the floor for the $20 bill. Look up. Breathe it in. Look. It's a beautiful world. Find it. And so one of the things he had me do, which I still do today, is he had me do what we called shuttling. And shuttling is just at different points in the day, stepping out, putting your phone on your desk, and walking out the door for two to three minutes and just looking up and breathing in. And, and, and feeling good about what you're seeing, slowing the inner train down, stopping all that noise. Now, Tuesdays with Maury was interesting because when Mitch would go back to Boston to be with his professor, who was dying of ALS, in the beginning of the book, they would go outside in a park in a wheelchair, and, and Maury would talk about important life lessons. But they were in nature. As the book went on, and Maury became more and more infirmed. He was no longer able to go outside. Towards the end of the book, they would he'd just be in a hospital bed, and they would just turn the hospital bed so he can look out the window and just see the trees. And that, to me, is just what it's all about. All the rest of it is just stories. It's 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 all our own construct. And so that book really um, moved me. What I wanted my book to be about, or our book to be about, was I wanted it to be the opposite. In Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch talks about, from the pupil standpoint, what he learned from his mentor or his professor. I wanted to write about what I've learned from the kids. And um, there's so much learning that can go on. And it's the shared journey. You know, last weekend we played against Tufts up in Medford, and we had a bunch of former Trinity players come over for the match. And it was perfect. Mm -hmm. And to me, the paycheck is the life lessons and the shared journey and the pictures of the new baby and saying, oh, my mom passed away. And the fact that we've shared that all the way through, that's the the, the paycheck for me. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I reflect on these years, and I know when it's time for me to check out, many of them will stop and say, that was pretty cool. Hmm. That Paul, was pretty cool. Paul, I have a feeling when I get caught up in my own story, I'm going to reflect and rewind back those past three minutes there, because um, I think that's going to help <laughs> me step back and just appreciate some things every once in a while. Can, can you uh, explain why the book is titled Run to the Roar? Yeah, so again, going back to my therapy, um, my therapist one day said to me, you know, you're really an, an interesting human being because I've never met anybody so conflict avoidant. You will do anything to avoid a quarrel, a de debate. You're, you're just, you don't deal with that very well. And yet every weekend you take young people into competition. Hmm. And um, there's such an such an incongruity there. And he said, so I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a true story. And he said that in Africa, lions hunt in packs. And what they do is they take with them the oldest female of the pride. By this point, she's old and infirmed and can't catch her own food. 
um, toothless, but she has the deepest roar. And what they do, if you can picture this, is they position the old lioness in the middle of the field, facing the bush. The bush may be a mile away, but it's she's facing the bush. In the bush is all the other lionesses. And the prey is in the field between her and the bush. When she roars, the prey run away from their roar to their death. If they would just go at the roar, they would find out it's just a toothless old lady. Mm. And that is a metaphor for life. When you're facing a challenge or when you're concerned about something, go at it. One of the questions I ask in this office 10 times a day is, all right, what's the worst that can happen? Let's talk about what the worst that can happen. It's never as bad as you've made it in your mind. It's just, again, stories. So let's, let's address it. I'm constantly encouraging the boys to make lists. When you go to bed at night, before you put your head down, look at your list for the next day. You actually wake up more engaged. All right, there's your list. What on your list is the thing that you're most concerned about doing? Do that first. But we don't do that. We put that, oh, it just happened to roll to the next day. And it happened, and all of a sudden, this thing is becoming bigger and bigger in your mind. Go at the problem. Go at the challenge. Paul, this conversation has just been so rich. You mentioned that's one of the questions you ask a lot in your office. A question I end every conversation with is, if you could do this, long-form conversation, deep, engaging interview with anyone dead or alive, who would you love to interview and what would you want to ask them? Well, you're pretty special. But, um, oh, I don't know. I'd like to go back and talk to my dad again. Hmm. I'd like to share that with him. It's in, it, so I'll tell you a quick story about my father. My father loved tennis. And he, he never played, but he loved it. When I was coaching world team tennis, he would come on the trips and he'd give me serving stats and stuff like that. And the tennis court was being rededicated and it's, it's in my name. And about a month before the dedication, my father passed away. And so that morning, my family came up and I was going to get on a, up to a, a microphone and dedicate the new tennis courts. And my father had the same name as me. So I, in my mind, I, I was dedicating the courts to my father. But that morning, there was a thunderstorm. And when I got up to the podium, the sun came out and there was a rainbow over the tennis courts. And I thought that son of a gun found his way to get here. For me, my father's passing was a cataclysmic experience. He and I would speak every day and it was always interesting. But when we weren't either in each other's company or we weren't talking on the phone, then we were busy doing our lives. We probably didn't think about each other very often in the day. When he passed away, it was like a starburst. I'm a wash in his aura everywhere I go, all day long. I'm closer to him now than maybe when he was alive. I just can't pick up the phone. Hmm. So I think if I could, I'd love to go back and say, hey, Dad, how am I doing? What do you think? What have I learned? I wish, I wish it wasn't always, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? That's just a story. I wish we could just share this moment. Paul, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think that's going to touch a lot of people, that final part. Paul, I'm going to have everything linked up to you, the book. Anywhere else you want the listeners going? Anywhere we can direct them? Um, no, well, I, you know, again, I'm at Trinity College. Feel free to reach out anytime. 
Um, free advice is worth what you pay for it, but I sure would love to talk to anybody out there. I speak through the Goodman Speakers Bureau and Diane Goodman. If anybody's looking for someone to speak, you know, bar mitzvahs, Christmas, whatever, I'm happy to do it. But, um, yeah, just reach out. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned, Sean, in these podcasts is it's not the person being interviewed that's important. It's the person asking the questions. And you, you're, you did a really good job. Well, thank you. That means a lot. Paul, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.